105 of Jen and Millie, where a Gen Xer and a millennial share the strength-based perspective through which they view the world. We are your hosts, Allison and Tess. Hi, Tess. It's like I just saw you. Hi, Allie. It's like I just saw you. It was so great to see you in person. <laughs> it was great. It felt, um, I mean, I know a lot of people have friends like this where you just pick right back up where you left off. And obviously you and I have this this space where we get to see each other and chat with each other. But mm-hmm. to see you in person was just mm-hmm. fantastic. It was. I really feel fortunate for the time that I had in D.C. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad. It was so great to see you and Hannah and Des Moines and the teammates people and Mentor Nebraska people. So it was pretty awesome. And I got to meet Ryan, which was absolutely (laughs) delightful. Uh, Heart affirming, soul affirming, mama bear affirming, all things affirming. The way you had described him was so spot on. But just wonderful to meet him. I'm so happy and excited for you and just to see the two of you together. But that was really, really fun for me. Yeah. I'm so glad you got to meet him too. I like laughed in retrospect when you said, I think like at the end of dinner, you were like, I had a minor freak out when I walked into the restaurant thinking, what if I don't like him? And I kept thinking, like, how tragic that would have actually been if you didn't like him. So, (laughs) but thankfully, it's it's funny, not the case. It's funny. I had a conversation recently uh, regarding my children's significance, who I now call my kids. So Dylan and Shanna are now my bonus kids. Shanna has been my bonus kid for quite some time. She calls herself 1A. She believes she deserves the title of being the favorite. She refers to Dylan as 1B because he has not spent the time to earn the position of being a favorite, but I do love them both very much. And I'm so lucky that my kids have chosen incredible humans that I also adore. What if I didn't like them? Yeah. And would I lie through my teeth about it? Would I fake it? I I don't know what I would do. And thankfully I don't have to worry about it, but that as I was walking into the restaurant, all of a sudden I had this like overwhelming panic. Like what if I don't like Ryan? And Tess knows me so well, and my face yeah. shows things so much that I thought, can I get away with this if I don't like him? I don't just like him. I I respect and appreciate and very much love him already. I put Ryan on the spot and asked him. I shared with him our family tradition is um, on someone's birthday, we share three things that we love about that person. And... You had just had a birthday, the first part of, of January. And so I, I just put him on the spot and I said, you know, what do you love about Tess? And I said, you don't have to answer right now, right? As soon as I said it, I felt like Des Moines looked at me as if, what are you doing to this poor guy? He just yeah. meets us and then He's you like ask him a interview. question like that. Yeah. Right. It's He's like, here comes Allison. Yeah. Here comes Allison interrogation process. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, no, I can answer that right now. And he leaned in and described you with, as if he had, I don't know, like written a dissertation a couple days prior. He, he spoke to your strengths. He spoke to the best of you. But the thing that stood out to me the most that I loved is that he named all the ways that you are kind. 
And there are a lot of ways that we describe people in the world. There are a lot of ways that I describe you. But I don't know that I've spent the time and the awareness of truly your kindness. And he spoke to that so accurately. It was like having both a heart and a brain and like a science and like music, like all the things were aligning for me. Mm -hmm. So I told him, you know, how much I appreciated it. And then we talked about you being, you know, Professor Tess and that you were teaching. And I said, you know, are you going to walk into the classroom? And he said, I think I'm, I'm going to sit in on one of her classes. So <laughs> I immediately thought of this, the scene in Parenthood where Rick Moranis's character comes into his wife's class classroom and starts singing close to you by the carpenters. And I was like, Ryan, I got to send this to you. So I'm sure he thought after that kind of introduction to Allison, <laughs> maybe that maybe the podcast make more sense now. <laughs> he was like, I understand. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. I, yeah, it was I get her. Great. It was a great thing. I think it was. Uh, yeah, he he says that a lot about me that I'm just kind and I, you know, and even like at dinner that night, like that being one of the things that he shared and. It, it prompted a lot of reflection for myself too, I think because I, like my strengths are so, I mean, I'm so dominant in thinking and I think our world just puts those into like binaries that you're a thinker or a feeler. And that's what I've always really appreciated about strengths as a structure, right? Is it's, is it talks about how we are so complex and multifaceted as human beings that we have the ability to hold both the head and the heart at the same time. Um, and, mm -hmm. but I think one of the things that I've noticed is because I'm in this place where I, that, that dictates my thinking themes to be that much more palpable and present and applied that it's that, part of my own conception of self had become more and more about the head over the heart not the head and the heart and so um you know whereas when I was applying my thinking themes like at teammates I was you know utilizing and being very heart-centered as well and and that doesn't mean I'm not doing that in academia I do it a lot when I teach and I'm always thinking about you know how my research might impact people or how I can you know, ensure that it's open access and available to, to people and not stuck behind a paywall or inaccessible to the people who, who could benefit from the research. But I think um, just the conditions, like, you know, reward is probably a good way to say it. The conditions reward thinking to be much higher than feeling um, where I'm at now, which, uh, which so I don't, you know, always recognize and see in strength spot myself in the way that my uh, relationship building themes are showing up. And you are now in a relationship where, I mean, I feel like the essence of you, the beauty of you, the genius of you is in a container that's different than it's ever been used before. And how interesting it is yeah. back to the binary, like you're a badass. You pride yourself in being a badass. You pride yourself in being, um, strong, independent, you know who you are. Mm -hmm. And yet there's this, and I, I'm going to use this word, you may not like it, but there's a softer side of you that has come out since Ryan 
has been part of your life. And when we talk about complimentary partners or we talk about great relationships in any regard, I think it helps us to soften. Mm -hmm. Our edges yeah. get less harsh mm -hmm. and our ability to lean in and trust mm -hmm. shifts. And so I'm seeing this, um, not saying that you were harsh or rigid, but yeah, like surreal, the badass yeah. of you shows up differently. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very much like protecting, oh, remind me, Ryan's dog. Hawk. I forgot his name. Yeah. Hawk. Protecting Hawk. Like it's this softer side of you that I've never seen before. And like the way that you talk about Hawk, the pictures that I see, it's, it's a softer side of Tess. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, of course me, empathy connectedness, I'm going to lean all into that and witness it. But to hear him name the best of you was a total privilege for us at the table. And I, I know that there may be a lot of people in my life and maybe even some of our listeners who roll their eyes at the kind of questions that I ask or the conversation prompts that I have. But that was so affirming to me about saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to get outside of this side chat, chit chat surface level. Right. And we're going to go just a, just a little bit deeper. Yeah. And I gave, I give people usually the option. Would you like to participate in this? You don't have to. Mm -hmm. I love when they step in and, uh, to be part of that moment was pretty magical. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. And as someone who, uh, does not take uh, compliments very well. I will say it was very, very uncomfortable to sit there. And like, that's something that I had to recognize and try and listen anyway. <laughs> and, you know, I have been attempting in my own self journey and my own self-awareness practices to one of the things that, you know, I've realized that I've always known, but I've realized, especially more and more lately, just how how loud and um, overriding my inner critic is. And, um, and that's such a, a reality. We're our own worst critics. Everyone is. Um, but mine just like shuts down any, anything else, right? Any ulterior voices. It's when we talk about a board of directors, if, if I included my critic in it, it would fire the rest of the board members and, you know, it would result in total anarchy. Like, that's just the reality. Um, and so one of the, like, as simple as it sounds, one of the things that I've really been trying to do to correct that and work on that is I've almost had to frame it as a hypothetical practice is what if what this person is saying is true? Like, what if the compliments... The inner critic? They, no, the compliments oh. of other people, right? Like, what if what they're saying... Like, what if I believe that this is actually true? Like, what if I choose to believe this, right? And and it softens and dulls and puts the inner critic a little bit in its place. So, um, yeah. I, I also, for listeners, um, a great practice that I have found to be very helpful is uh, this past year I named her. I named my inner critic. Mm. Um, her name is Marie, which, and I, I describe her, I actually wrote a dialogue between the inner critic and the muse. Those are my two strongest parts of me. 
um, the muse is creativity and flow and music and joy. It's basically me above the line. And my inner critic is very harsh. Uh, she doesn't wear makeup. She wears her hair in a bun. She's 10 minutes early and she carries a clipboard. Um, I named her Marie. Marie is my middle name. And I was named after, my middle name was named after my grandma who shares the same middle name, Wilma Marie. I'm Allison Marie. And my grandma was probably one of the hardest people to be around. Mm -hmm. She lived a very difficult life that led to her today. And I, I think about her story and maybe her truth, mm -hmm. what her truth would be about it. But she um, lost a child. Um, she went through a very serious bout of depression, was treated at the time, you know, the 40s, very limited resources when it came to treating that kind of trauma and depression and uh, shock therapy and stuff like that. Grandma was this itty bitty teeny tiny person like maybe weighed 90 pounds and she was hard to be around. She Everything was doom mm -hmm. and I feel like I missed out on the best of her because of her her pain and I wish somebody could have loved on it and you know she could have had the resources because she was brilliant in a lot of ways but I named my inner critic Marie because it sounds a lot like Grandma Wilma. Mm. You're not going to get this right. It is not going to go well. Have you thought about all the 45 ways this is going to go wrong? That's what Marie sounds like. Penny, who is the muse, she and Marie, they, they just, they aren't pals. Um, but when I get into a situation where I'm truly out of balance with something and I need to do a check of myself, I will write out a dialogue between the two of them. And that helps me. It helps me reframe. What if what Penny is saying mm -hmm. is truth? Marie has gotten the microphone for 45 years. Mm -hmm. What if we gave Penny the mic for a bit and what would that look like? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a lot of what, what I'm attempting to practice because, uh, yeah, just, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I don't even know. It's just a lot to, to process. And I, I've, I've had to frame it as a hypothetical because I can't just say like, Oh, what they're saying is true. Like, what if I believed that? what they were saying was true and it's okay so I'm gonna push yeah you don't think like really I mean I know your analytical brain like knows that but you know what Ryan said was true correct or no I I believe that that's his truth yeah oh so he's shaded in his love for you <laughs> yeah yeah maybe oh damn this is good this is great <laughs> So if I, I don't said like being on exactly, this side. I like being the one I know you don't. You. <laughs> I don't like this. I'm starting to shut down. <laughs> when the turns have tabled, um, I think that that is really interesting based on what we talked about in the green room. Truth is relative. Mm -hmm. So, do you really believe that Ryan, when you are at your worst and on your worst day, and 20 years from now? Ryan will still not believe those things to be true about you? I think Ryan will believe those things to be true about me. Yeah. I know those things that he said are true. <laughs> and I've known you for a bit. 
Mm-hmm. I bet I bet your parents and your siblings would hear what Ryan is saying and also agree. Maybe. This is good test. <laughs> well, it leads right into what we were talking about in the green room. And we do talk about, I was thinking the other day, you know, if you were to pick up on keywords and phrases, right? If you were just mm-hmm. to listen in for keywords and phrases in this podcast, we have some. We talk about integrity a lot. Mm-hmm. We talk about self-awareness a lot. We talk about truth. Yeah. And I know you're going to share a little bit about um, your take on your most recent read. Mm-hmm. And in the green room, I said to Tess, are we really going to talk about truth again and truth being relative? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, what if people are sick of it? Which is <laughs> <laughs> so woo. So woo. And actually, what if the people listening don't like what we're talking about? That's not why we come here. Yeah. It's It's ironic to me that the fact that we just get into this space so that we can continue the amazing engaging dialogues that we had as colleagues Mm -hmm. and somehow people glean something from it and take it with them. Mm -hmm. That is the miracle that this is. So if you're going to hear us talk about truth again and you're like sick of that, I'm sick of truth telling hop off now. But if you want to stick around, I think it's going to go well. (laughs) Yeah. I, I love that that was your first inclination. And I think my immediate response was like, who cares? Like, it's what we're going to talk about. (laughs) So clearly the woo, not high for me. That's my response to it. But I didn't even think about that because I was like, I don't think we've really framed it in this, in this way, this kind of conversation, because yeah, I guess, I guess it really like when we were talking like just a bit in the green room, you know, Ali was asking about my most recent read, which was uh, um, Vanderbilt by Anderson Cooper, uh, who is the son of who he argues is the last Vanderbilt. Um, there are others who come from the Vanderbilt line that are, you know, still alive, but his mother was really the last of kind of the direct lineage of the American dynasty of the Vanderbilts, really, that kind of fizzled and waned and is no longer, you know, the dynastic force that it once was in U.S. society. And, um, and it was good. I read it over the last couple of days and, um, you know, I was sharing that I, I think it's been really interesting. I've learned a lot. Uh, I think especially I've really been thinking about it in the context of teaching because I, you know, my class that I'm teaching is called power, privilege, and inequality. And we're on our third week of class and capitalism. So we were literally talking this week. I didn't time it. My library book just came up for me to read. Um, read Vanderbilt like I you know on my audiobook library rental just happened to be open then Um, so I was finally off hold for the for the library book to read the book and it happened to happen or happened to occur excuse me the same week that um, I'm teaching on the elite right who are the elite how do we define them who are they how do they continue to be who they are right um you know, why do we all want to be them? Like all of these like types of questions, right? And um, so it was really interesting to be reading this personally and it coinciding with these conversations in class. And um, and really the the interesting thing about, about reading it was, I mean, he used and he had a co-writer and I am um, failing to remember the co-writer's name, I apologize. Um, just want to give credit to her as well he gives a great acknowledgement to her in the end of the book as well um but 
you know, he uses a lot of historical documents and uses like the society pages and um, he had several, you know, of his um, his ancestors who are Vanderbilt's that, um, you know, kept record and diaries and documents. So it's very historically rich, right? But, you know, he's making a claim, you know, about the rise and the fall of, of the Vanderbilt's and he's recounting really specific details like, you know, a ball that they held and one of them being married off to a duke and like these like i mean historical events that you can find newspaper for and you know primary and secondary historical sources he's also inserting a lot of prose into it which was a little bit of where i the skeptic in me was a little bit uh uncertain um and i know it was it's kind of positioned as a historical piece but also kind of memoir because it's like his family his mother and his mother's family that he's writing about and so I wasn't really sure it didn't quite fit into my boxes of like categories um because I don't think mm. I could quite say that it was it's a historical piece even though it's really historically rich I mean that's what it is it's a historical kind of biography on a family rather than an individual um but there were, a, were, there were a lot of times in which I, I kind of questioned some of what he was recounting because it seemed emotion and kind of contextually really, like it just evoked certain like emotions and feelings and describing the ambiance of places, which some of those things weren't necessarily, weren't recounted, right, in in these historical documents. So it really made me, you know step back to say it's hard to consider this a historical piece entirely right because of those features of it but also then it made me take a step back from that to say you could say that about any historical piece right because everyone is making an argument about history and about what history needs to be told and from whose perspective that needs to be told and so it brought me all the way back to then this, you know, whole idea. And we talked a little bit about truth, but, you know, I've always, as a social scientist, um, you know, we make sense of the world from the collection of our individual perspectives, right? That it's a, you know, an individual's lived experience is their view of the world, which is different than someone else's, right? And therefore our sense of what society is is based on the patterns that we find between people's individual lived experiences. And so I actually, this this past summer in a workshop that I, I went to at George Mason University, the end of the, the learning, we had to kind of uh, create a presentation or a visual or some type of display of our takeaway. And I painted this piece that said there is no objectivity because I mean, because of that simple fact, right? That everyone's perspective, you could argue in our neoliberal context, right? That, I mean, that's the whole point of it, right? That everyone's lived experience is a sense of truth, right? Um, and right. so it, yeah, I guess it kind of brought me back to that and, and brought me back to thinking and reflecting on not only what is truth, right? In like the super meta sense, right? But like how do each of us as individuals based on our strengths 
based on our social location, based on our position and our family of origin and our values. What do we consider truth? What do we consider data? What do we consider valid information that we use to make decisions from? And I think there are definitely patterns. Like I think you and I who share a lot of identities, uh, we we probably have some similarities, right? We have some overlap. But because of our different Mm -hmm. strengths and our different life experiences and our different values perhaps, there will be different things that we consider and we go to maybe as the primary source of truth and then the kind of a secondary level of backing up that truth, right? And so then to come full circle, right? So here's my whole my whole thought process and then I'd be interested to hear, to hear where you're at. Um, so then it made me think of like I go to fact. I go to... Even like I, I processing them some things with my therapist recently, and um, and she wanted me to kind of uh, find like blogs or like perspectives on someone who was like contemplating similar things that I was like in a very vague sense, and so I googled it and I found like some blogs and then I found a study by the National Institute of Health. <laughs> And so I was like, of course, I'm going to go to that source and I'm going to read about the prevalence of this within young women, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so anyway, I was it was just such a funny (laughs) example, like just like go to, you know, find if like people are talking about this online and reflecting about it. Like, I'm sure you can find blog posts from people. And when I saw an NIH study, I was like, I'm going to read that first for sure. And then maybe I'll take a look and see what these blogs have to say about it. And that might be helpful as well. But I just thought it was a kind of a funny way. And I'm like, that's for sure my strengths in action, right? Like I'm looking for these like empirically proven findings first. And then maybe I'll go and I'll back that up by stories or people's individual perspectives. But I want to see the macro level overall, like the data on this. And then I'm going to look and see what emotions are tied to it, what stories are tied to it, which life experiences are tied to it. And I just thought like not everybody approaches things that way, right? Because, you know, not everybody validates their truth or their perspective in the same way. So on that very note, um, I was having a dialogue with a colleague today about really the perspective of um, how we identify that inner critic and how we, we name it, first of all, because everyone has one. Everyone is walking around with it. But to be in the space of naming it is really stripping away ego. And, and getting to this place of, um, I refer to it actually as love. And being honest with yourself requires a tremendous lens, lens of empathy and self-forgiveness to be really truthful with yourself. Um, and I think that self-awareness piece is hard. So it's, it's really hard to take ownership of whatever happened in your story. It's a lot easier if you think about I guess I'll use this example. I have entered into a new relationship, one that's full of mutual respect and um, truth telling and um, really healthy. And one of the things that I've noticed right, right out of the gates about him is that he takes ownership in his part of the previous relationship uh, I don't want to use the word failures, but I guess, you know, relationships that didn't work out. He takes ownership in that. And when I first met him, that was one of the things that was really so attractive was he said, 
you know, and these are the great things I learned from that relationship. And here's how I showed up in a, you know, not so positive way. And that kind of transparency and authenticity, I mean, I'm just drawn to plus trust. I mean, that helps me to trust him because that's true for me, but then, you know, you get into this space, it's a new relationship. You start to tell stories, right? You start to talk about, you know, this relationship failure, this didn't work out. This is how I got to today. That's one of my favorite questions to ask mm-hmm. new co- clients when I'm uh, as a guide or a coach. Tell me how you got to today. Cause what I pay attention to is what they name in the dash, you know, the day, the year that you're born and the year that you pass away, the dash, the in-between what they name is significant is significant to me because mm-hmm. that's their truth, right? So if I look at my dash, the things that I'm going to name are going to be those points in history that are fact for me that are important dates on the timeline. I color in the in-between. So as I was coloring in the in-between of, you know, here's some examples of this X or this didn't work out or this is what I felt about it, it has put me in such a place of of a truth lens because you can't really know the facts if you only have yours. So one of the things that I often say to him is, you know, this is what I think happened, but if he was sitting here telling his side of the story or his version, it may sound very different. And I want to acknowledge that. Um, Or, you know, back to tests when we're thinking about our reflection of fact, it depends on the headspace we're coming in. Yeah. Are we above the line? Are we below the line? Are we even able to speak towards fact when we're stressed, hungry, tired, pissed off, Mm -hmm. emotional? And I think about a lot of the decisions that I have made over the years that I I don't like to use the term regret anymore, but that I, I maybe could have made differently. Most of them were made below the line in a space of anxiety and stress where I felt rushed or pushed both from internal forces and external. And I, I made a decision that later truth or data would have helped me to be better informed about that decision. Very true. I like that note of you can't have truth if you only have your side, which makes sense. And again, like I feel like that's the work of us as like social scientists, right? As as lovers of people and humanity and society, that that the the closest that we can get to truth and objectivity is by a a multitude of voices is by the collective is by hearing the stories of of people and I you know recently in my in my my closet's a little full and so I have like these uh some things that I don't I don't know if you're like this but if I like recently washed it it's at the top of my pile I just tend to grab grab that right so like my PhD uniform has been leggings and a t-shirt every day like that's just the reality not the days that I teach now I'm starting to branch back out into like adult clothes again but I wear leggings and a t-shirt every day every day and so but I happen to be wearing like the same 10 or so maybe t-shirts that I would just like cycle through because they're at the top of my pile 
So I was like, okay, I gotta switch it up. I can't keep wearing these same shirts. So I took the bottom probably stack and put it on the top just to like mix things up, right? And the first t-shirt that showed up was the greatest human need is that of being heard, the teammate shirt that I kept. And, um, and I was like, it was such a good reminder and something that I just so needed. And, and I think that's also the task of arriving at truth and arriving at objectivity is by hearing people honoring their perspectives because when we think about history we think about what's been written we think about the stories that have been told we think about our own perspective right like most of what we've learned and most of what we know is the from the perspective of those have who have power and those who have won right which in the united states of america right predominantly white cis heterosexual men right so and white women right now at this point so examining what we know and how we know it because what we know came from somewhere our base knowledge right apart from our lived experience what we know came from somewhere right even our lived experience Mm -hmm. and the knowledge we gain from our lived experience came from somewhere right we interpret the world around us right based on the clues that we have we fill in those gaps and we provide explanations for the things that we see and the things that we notice and so examining and taking a step back to not see that as objective nor truthful, right? It is a sense of that. It is a, you know, it's someone's truth, right? But to fill in the gaps of the voices that we need to hear, the voices that are missing in order to arrive at a closer truth, more closer to the bullseye of what actually is happening by including a multitude of voices in that and by hearing them and incorporating their stories as part of the narrative of reality. And that takes time. Oh, yeah. it takes time and it takes focus and it takes energy. So interesting. And it takes the power of not making assumptions. I was already in assumption mode when you started down the line of 10 t-shirts because I thought what you were going to say was I ran into someone who said, wow, I've seen you in that shirt 17 times. And so my assumption about Tess is she only owns 10 t-shirts. That was the math I was going to. That was not at all the story you were about to tell, Mm -hmm. but the assumption I was making, oh, this is an analogy about it's not true. I have 60 t-shirts, but I only wear the 10 over and over because I don't really care about my attire right now. So again, like the lens of assumption. And this is such a beautiful thing for us to consider right now in the space that we're in at any given moment. I, and I'm going to go back to what Ryan said to you about being kind. In the moment that he said that, I thought, is that Is that a word, an attribute that Tess will see with as much clout as, I don't know, the word like brilliant? And I'm not kidding. Ryan, I hope you're listening. I've reflected on that moment over and over and over. It was so powerful for me because we all know I love love, but I love respect. And to, I mean, he just has respect for you as a person. And then I was listening to that piece about kindness and I was like, if there was one thing, one thing I could ask of my kids, it would be to be kind. 
And I think about all of the times that we walk around in the world and if we could just make the assumption that everybody we interact with is going through some kind of shit, mm -hmm. we would be kinder. And we don't know their truth. And we don't know what got them today. And we don't know what made them cut us off in traffic. And we don't know what made them crabby, you know, mm -hmm. at the eye doctor's office. But like when we bring this lens of the assumption of they're walking in their truth and I don't know a thing about it, yeah. it makes us more open and aware and it gets us out of the assumption listening yeah. and into more active listening. And that's where people can truly be heard. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. I also think it is, it's absolutely ironic to me that So many of us struggle with this because I used to think it was just me. I used to think it was just me that had an inner critic that was loud. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was vulnerable and honest with myself that allowed me to have a voice to be open and honest with others yeah. that made me feel more seen and heard for, the, for that. Um, and that to me is where, you know, self-awareness becomes a leadership skill. It becomes not just a tool for us to walk around in the world knowing ourselves a little bit better, but it becomes a leadership skill. Naming Marie, that's been 90% of the battle. She's not nearly as loud when I say, oh, I hear you. Okay. <laughs> um, her phrase, and I would really want our, I want our listeners to think about this. What catchphrase or what phrases, what words, what story is your inner critic telling? My inner critic stands in her truth very clearly and her phrase is who do you think you are missy you are a farm girl from nebraska who do you think you are and she, that's her truth and penny over here the muse is like shut up marie she says <laughs> but it's also like where, what are we doing next? Do you see what you just accomplished in this last two years? You went out on your own. You started to adventure. You started to find yourself. Look at all this dancing and what this dancing has led to. You should dance more. Who cares? Who gives a shit what anybody thinks? I mean, there are two very strong voices, but it's interesting to me that I have found truth in Marie in the inner critic for the majority of my life. Why would I find more truth in that? Why is it easier for you to disbelieve Ryan than to believe him? That's a good question. And those narratives, they are loud and they are heavy and they keep us stuck and they keep us from doing what our ikigai reason for being purpose is. And I think that's the beauty of getting older. Gosh, I'm just loving this year and this word of the year because I think, yeah, the two people I really care about impressing now are eight-year-old me and 80-year-old me. And everybody else, your opinions are starting to wane in the distance. I'm, I'm kind of over giving you the front row seat to my life. But don't wait to get old like me to do that. Don't wait 
don't wait to turn the mic over to some other part of you. advice good recommendation gosh truth in all in all its levels individual interpersonal collective where do you feel like you go first what kind of data most largely constructs your truth it's so ironic that you would ask that so i We've been doing a lot of We Over Me episodes talking about strengths, and we recorded one today on relationship building themes. We recorded one on basically strength-based has become one of our core values and teammates, and I'm so proud of that. I feel like that's really important work that I've done, and I really am glad to see that happening. But one of the things we were talking about are strength spotters in our life, and I commented on our teammates' Facebook page about that naming strength spotters and mentors. And I named, I always talk about Mrs. Weber and sometimes I talk about Mr. Evans, but then I thought about Mrs. Lovegrove and Mrs. Fetty. Mrs. Lovegrove was my kindergarten teacher. And I remember she, she was a truth teller in this sort of beautiful way. Like if she told me where the restrooms were, I believed her. If she, if she would have told me, I, I just, I had tremendous belief in her. And you know what comes down to is one of the first things we learned about were the letter people. Did you have the letter people? No. Miss A. Oh, geez. The letter people, they had, you know, A is for, I can't remember what it was. I want to say amicable, but that's not right. But it was, <laughs> they were drawn out. They were people. Okay. And she taught us the letter people in this like really cool way. And it was tied to music, of course. And. And I just remember being like, oh, words are true. Letters are true. It, this is true. Then I go to, I, I almost had like a season of like amazing magical teacher, strict discipline teacher, amazing magical teacher, strict di- discipline teacher. Second grade, we had Mrs. Hill. Mrs. Hill wore V-neck sweaters that I mean, they were like, one was like this buttery yellow color. I can see her. She was young. And I thought she was like 60. And she was probably 26, 27 years old. Anyway, when she wanted us to get in our headspace of learning or calm down, she played records. And she played Bread. Bread is a band. Just recently, Sean has put together another amazing playlist, that kid of all the things that he's accomplished in his life and will, I will not be anything will come close to how proud I am about his music taste. He puts together this playlist. It has bread on it. And I said, Oh my God, bread. And I'm telling him about my second grade teacher. And he goes, I've never heard you talk about Mrs. Hill before. I said, she was magic, but it was like these educators that made learning come alive Mm -hmm. where I find my math, my data, a lot of it, Tess, is centered in words and music. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you can spot away on... Spot that communication, that input. Absolutely, that connectedness. Oh, yeah. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. What about for you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's facts. It's statistics. 
I mean, primarily. It's what's the prevalence of this in the population, so do I fit within the normal distribution? <laughs> we, we know this. We've talked about this. <laughs> Allison's talking about the letter people. <laughs> we, again, I just feel like I walk into this space with just nothing but disappointment for you. Statistics, I mean, I don't even know half of what you just said, but I think also I almost flunk stats. It happens. I shined in social research though. Yeah. So, you know, Especially again, qualitative. like. Qualitative. You do qualitative research all day long. That's what you but do. But let, you like, letter people are my jam. That's, I found truth in the letter people. <laughs> and Tess is like, I don't know, statistics. <laughs> Real but you can also, you can strength spot that, right? You can 100% strength spot that. Also, I mean, everything about this dialogue today is your context and action. Yeah. I would. I hope Anderson Cooper calls you and says, hey, you know, I heard your podcast because I listen to it regularly. <laughs> and I just want, I'd love to join in and give a little bit of perspective as to why I do believe I can tell this story. Mm-hmm. And here's my truth and here's my why or here's what my mom shared with me. I was thinking about it as you were sharing that. Does something become true once we have two people validate or verify it? So if I say what Ryan said was true, does that make it more truthful to you? If Hannah said it was true, still not enough. You need like 75 people. I I only need like one and a half. (laughs) I think that's a really good question, right? Like what is like the litmus test or the threshold for, because like in society, we, we have markers of that, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have, and statistically speaking, we have ways to verify if something is reliable fact, right? Like how strongly associated certain things are to one another, like different mm-hmm. concepts or different variables or different items on a scale. So there are ways that we have found to measure that, right? And it is about a collection of voices and how similar perspectives are. Um, I think it's interesting to distill it to the individual. I've never thought much about that. And I think for me, because of where my inner critic is at this point, I don't know how many it would take because they stamp down on many voices, you know, so. Well, I mean, back to my, to what I shared earlier about, you know, in my, in the dialogues that I've had with Rich, when I say, you know, and if, if this person was sitting here, this might be what they would say. I feel like I'm almost trying to provide a truth lens that it's not just my view. If they were sitting here, I think this is what they would say, but I don't even know that. That's a big leap assumption that I'm making yes. that my truth is the same as theirs. I, this is something I dive into further with my kids as they get older and they say to me, hey, do you remember they learned what their dad taught them about avoiding the doorbell when the Schwan man came? They learned duck and dive. So we had big open windows, big picture window in our house and the doorbell would ring and if it was the Schwan man, Mike was so avoidant of like, he just couldn't say, no, I don't want anything. He just avoided it altogether. So he taught the kids the duck and dive, which is drop 
and hide from whoever is ringing the doorbell, pretend you're not home. So you could be walking by the picture window where clearly anyone could see you in the house. The doorbell would ring and my children would, would <laughs> drop to the floor. So, you know, as we're, they're sharing about some of these stories now, I see their lens on what we call, you know, we've got Edgecombe family stories. Mm-hmm. And these stories that we have, I hear them now through their lens and think, ooh, that's not exactly how I remember it. Yeah. But truth, their truth mm-hmm. is relative. Yeah. But it's also like this idea, and I think you said earlier, and I'm not sure like if, if this is the way you meant it, like that saying if this person were here and and telling their story, this is what I think they would say. And you said that might be faulty of me to assume that that their perspective would be the same as mine. I think just acknowledging that there would be a different perspective is opening the door for a greater sense of truth, right? Mm-hmm. And like you're acknowledging, you're not acknowledging that they would have the same perspective as you would, like unless you're using and weaponizing it for that purpose, right? Which I right. don't think you are, but no. you could, right? Easily, right? They would probably back me up, right? Like, But acknowledging that they might have a different perspective or take on the situation than you would. Well, that's been the hard part of this mm-hmm. is to like own my part. So it's really easy to say, oh, the reason this didn't work out is because this guy is an absolute fill in the blank and his blah, blah, blah contributed to blah, blah, blah. It's really easy to do that. But that that doesn't work for me. That's too easy. And I don't want I don't want to look back at the energy and the heart Mm -hmm. that I put into previous relationships and think, oh yeah, well the end of it, I'm just going to put on them. And therefore that makes it easy for me. That lessens the impact. And so, you know, God willing, no one will ever show up in this space to to contradict anything that I've shared on here. But if they did, you know, I would open that, be open to that and welcome that because I think that's where truth for me lies. It's in um, the letter people versus statistics. It's the unique lens, right? And that helps me show up in the world more open and receptive Mm -hmm. to really listening what someone else is is trying to walk in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Great. Okay. I, okay, a few questions, I think for listeners I did have to jot things down because I feel like our conversation was a little bit all over the place surprise. but also with the surprise right but also at the same time so many threads of continuity so I think examining how you make sense of truth right what information do you see as more credible or less credible what information do you go to first what then serves as a form of support for that um and I think our easy example is, is I mean, we always talk about this, like you're the stories to my stats, like I'll come up with stats first and then you'll have a story to support it or you'll share a story and then I can back it up with stats, right? Um, and and it's, and I've been contemplating the, that a lot in, in sharing data is I've seen it done both ways and recently read, recently reread an ethnography by a sociologist, um, Matthew Desmond called Evicted. It was a very popular book that a lot of non-sociology people read. It was a, um, a bestseller and he looked at eviction and housing insecure people in Milwaukee and his entire style of sharing data was oh, 
the real raw detail of people's stories. Then he would support it with stats. That's never my default way of presenting data. And it really challenged me and it really hit me and I've been gripped more with that data. And I recall the findings of that so much more than I recall things that that start data heavy and then, oh, and here's an example, by the way. No, here's a story and here's someone's life and let's lay it out for you. And then let's talk about how this same situation or really similar situation is afflicting thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, right? So it's been a, it's been a good challenge, but I would I would challenge uh, challenge listeners to examine what is credible, what is valid, what information do they go to first when they want to seek out uh, uh, truth, objectivity, validity, credibility, so on and so forth. What sources do you go to? Um, is that music, stories, news, the letter people, the letter people, so on and so forth. <laughs> um, so that would be first and. Um, Secondly, examining, naming, going forth in a practice of recognizing your inner critic in order to place more equitable value on it when comparing it to other sources. So I don't think I'm under the belief that we can't ever get rid of our un- of our inner critic. Uh, you will never be rid of Marie, unfortunately, but it's trying to balance Marie with the other voices in life. And so um, either going through a practice like what if I believed the things that people are saying about me are true, the compliments, the affirmations, what they love about us, so on and so forth. Or um, if it's naming and personifying your inner critic in order to silence them. And then third, um, I love this question, and I haven't contemplated this question before. You share a lot of questions, but I have not heard this question before from you. I racked my context frame. And so I'm going to, between now and our next episode, walk through this practice myself. But answering the question, what got you to today? And charting, I've done some life history courses, uh, charting life history. Um, I feel like it's always been more guided than that. So I've been asked to pick five high moments, five low moments, asked to chart something that happened in elementary, middle, high, college, so on and so forth. The question, what got you to today, is very abstract. And it allows, it's very vague, probably intentionally. (laughs) Uh, So it allows the individual to choose the events, the interpretations, the moments of truth, the moments of life that are the most central to their current identity and place and conception of self. So uh, did I miss anything in terms of follow-up? Beautifully done. Okay. Okay. Well, what is your truth? Uh, taking a look at uh, conception of truth and val- uh, valid value. What got you to today? Um, yeah, be some good exercises. We hope to hear from some listeners on that. Hopefully you stuck around. <laughs> Hopefully you didn't take the duck when Allie was like, please leave it now if you don't want to hear our conversation. <laughs> oh my gosh. I always feel like people have got to know what they're getting into at this point in time with us. So. Well, I would hope so. I mean, for real, the fact that we we go down the lines of like a lot of common themes, but at the same time, like I haven't talked about the letter people. Never heard of them before. <laughs> oh, I'm for sure sending you. There was a book and I got to be miss a. 
Because I was Allison. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love it. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to episode 105 of Jen and Millie. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider consider sharing this episode with a friend. My goodness, my words today are difficult. To interact with us and share your responses to the question we pose, give us a follow on Instagram at Jen and Millie. That's at G-E-N-N-A-N-D-M-I-L-L-I-E. Until next time.